Charles Wood is the host of Ruby Rogues, JavaScript Jabber, and several other shows under the network devchat.tv. Charles, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's good to be here. You started the Ruby Rogues podcast in 2011. What was going on in your life then? Uh, I had been freelance for about eight or nine months, and uh, the short version of that story is that I'd been thinking for a while that it would be fun to do a panel discussion podcast, and James Edward Gray, who was also on that show, um, had the idea to do the same thing for Ruby, so... We got together, we talked to some people we knew, we pulled together a panel, and we started the show, and that's kind of the way that that was. Um, but yeah, that that's more or less what was going on at the time. That was four years ago, so my wife would have been pregnant with our fourth child as well, and yeah, just moving ahead with business and life. So... Um how did you get into freelancing? Like, what did you have a, a normal job before then, like a day-to-day nine-to-five? Is there such a thing as a normal job? <laughs> um, yeah, I had a, I had three programming jobs, full-time jobs before I went freelance, and before that, I was doing tech support, which means that I was managing all the folks who answered calls and emails about a software product by the company I worked for. And I was actually doing the Rails coding on the side to keep our, basically the the software that we managed our workload in. Uh, I was doing that and it wasn't part of my job description, but they weren't paying for any software. So that's kind of the way it had to go. That's actually how I got into programming uh, as, as some kind of professional option for me. Interesting. As a, uh, as a, you, converted to that from from, from kind of from, from more support yeah from uh product support uh manager interesting okay so so you started ruby rogues and what was it like at first like w- describe the experience of starting a software podcast well it wasn't my first my first podcast was in 2008 it was a i called it rails coach and it was kind of a mix between me just talking into my microphone and doing interviews with other programmers, which is incidentally how I met James in the first place. So starting that one was kind of daunting. The The first episode, I just kind of talked about why I liked Rails. The second episode, I interviewed Greg Pollock. Uh, the fourth episode, I interviewed James Edward Gray, and I started connecting with people there. Uh, starting Ruby Rogues was a little bit more routine because I'd done it before. I'd also done Teach Me to Code screencasts for a while, so I had all the equipment, and I was pretty well set up to run things. And we just got together and said, okay, who do we want to have on this? We both knew David Brady. We both knew he was a little bit crazy, so we invited him to be on Ruby Rogues. And I talked to Peter Cooper, and I said, hey, do you want to be on the show? Because I had made that contact while doing Rails Coach. And he said, I would like to, but I think you should get Aaron Patterson. So we picked up Aaron Patterson and Peter Cooper and had them both on the show. After about, I want to say like 10 episodes or so, both Peter and Aaron decided that they were too busy to continue with the show. And so Avdi and Josh joined the show pretty quick after that. And So why why the panel format? I'm very curious about that because my show is just a very like one-on-one right. discussion, but um, the panel format is really interesting to me. And like I've, I've seen some of the upsides um, from listening to your show, but I'm curious what you think are the best aspects of doing a panel. Well, I can tell you I've done interview shows. I've done the uh, just one-person talking shows, and I've done the panel shows. And the trade-offs are more or less that if, if it's just you, then it's just you. So if you don't show up, if you're sick, if you're whatever, then you have to go make it up. The flip side is is if it's just you, you can make it up whenever you want. You don't have to schedule with anyone else. Having a co-host is kind of the next best thing where you get in, you talk, you can kind of play off of each other, you can get a little bit of a different personality on the call. Uh, The panel is kind of that times three, four, or five, however many panelists you have. So you get a wider breadth of experience, you get a wider breadth of personalities, you can have people ask different questions from different points of view based on the projects and products that they've put out there. 
and it just it really pays off to kind of have this myriad points of view on in there. Interesting. So Ruby Rogues, um, how popular was Ruby when you started the Ruby Rogues podcast? I don't know if I could put like a number on it. I know people like to say, oh, well, it's it was 10,000 popular then and it's 8,000 popular now <laughs> or something. Um, it, I mean, there, there was a large community. I think there's this perception too that Ruby has kind of declined in popularity. I think as a percentage of the market, that's true. I think in terms of the size of the community, the community is larger today than it was then. Hmm. Um, it's just that we have more and more new people coming in, learning things like iOS and JavaScript, uh, especially JavaScript. There's There are a lot, a lot of people coming in to learn JavaScript. And then people are also branching out and learning things like Go and Erlang and Elixir and some of these other more functional languages, Elm. Uh, and so we have this migration toward front-end technologies and things like that. But newer people are coming in through boot camps and stuff and joining the Ruby community. And so, I, yeah, I don't know that it's declined. I think it's a larger community, like I said, as opposed to anything else. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that the Ruby community has always been and will probably always be a very polyglot community. Uh, they tend not to just, you know, opt into whatever solution is just in Ruby. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see this a lot more with, like, the JavaScript community where they have to have all the tools written in JavaScript to do all the stuff that they're doing, even, even down to doing things like CSS compiling from SAS and things like that. Some people are actually working on converting that out of Ruby into JavaScript just because they wanted a JavaScript. So, so it sounds like you actually don't have a preference on the monoglot versus the polyglot approach. I think, I think having a polyglot approach is healthy because you, learn, you see different ways to solve problems. And I think everybody should experiment some. But I, I'm not going to fault anyone for digging deep in the technology that they really enjoy or find solves their problems in a way that they like. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I would like to talk more about JavaScript because um, that will provide an interesting contrast to the Ruby world. You started JavaScript Jabber, uh, I think, uh, what, what year was that? 20, 2012? 2011. 2011, okay. So you already had Ruby 20, Rogues. No, it was 2012. It was January 2012. Okay. So you already had Ruby Rogues going. Why, why start another podcast? What happened was Jameson Dance, who's a local developer here in Utah, he came to me and he said, I want to start something like Ruby Rogues, except I want to do it on JavaScript. And so we started talking about all of the stuff that you have to do to start a podcast and started pulling stuff together. And I looked at him and I said, do you want me to do this? And he basically said, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we started another show. But since I'd already done it, since I had solved a lot of the problems involved that first year, it, it kind of made sense. Or that first, what, eight months? I think there are eight months between starting Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber. How popular was JavaScript then? Uh, it was starting to gain popularity. A lot of people were using jQuery. A lot of people were finding, like, Scriptaculous or... Um, I'm trying to remember the other popular, like, animations libraries and things like that, jQuery UI... Those were all. Kind I, of I feel like I feel like there was all this criticism around JavaScript, like even like back then. I think it's like starting to dissipate now, but there was like some some weird criticism around it. There, there definitely was. I think most people were either frustrated that the browsers had different implementations of JavaScript, and so you could write JavaScript in one browser and have it not work in the other. I think at that point, though, jQuery had solved a lot of those problems, so it was much less of an issue. But at the same time. The browsers were also much more memory constrained and things like that. So you would wind up running into all of the boundaries and edges that were there. And if you wanted to try anything different or new, jQuery didn't always have something that would handle that for you. And so you had to solve those problems yourself. Today, it's much more fluid than that. The browsers uh, have a much more, or they're much more robust as far as memory consumption, memory usage, what they're capable of doing. And so you can more or less write whatever you want to write and just expect it to work. And there are either jQuery implementations that will work for you or systems like AngularJS actually incorporate a slimmed down, trimmed down version of jQuery for just the components that they care about. Right. And so JavaScript since then has started to get gigantic. Why is JavaScript getting so big? 
Well, there are a lot of different reasons for that. One reason is that since the browsers have gained all of these capabilities, people have decided that they want applications that act a lot like desktop applications. And so doing things within on, the browser. Yes. So doing things on the front end uh, makes a lot more sense. There's also a large movement to move a lot of your processing to the front end. Uh, that saves you server cycles and uh, in some cases bandwidth. And so that makes a lot of sense too. And then you also have JavaScript uh, kind of moving into other spaces. So you have JavaScript in robotics and Internet of Things, which are very related because they're usually on the same devices. You also have JavaScript on the server now with Node.js. And finally, you have a myriad of options that you can go to to write your JavaScript in other languages that are maybe a little more approachable or a little more idiomatic that you can then build to JavaScript, essentially, and it'll run in the browser and work well. So the workflows aren't as hard as they were four or five years ago. But these people who are choosing to write Internet of Things applications or um, whatever types of server-side applications in JavaScript instead of a language like Ruby. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, expanding the ecosystem for them to be able to write that stuff in JavaScript in the, in the first place will create more JavaScript developers. But why are people choosing JavaScript as their server-side language of choice? I've heard several things. Uh, some of them make a lot of sense to me, and some of them really don't. One of the, I'll start with one or two of the more popular ones that don't make a lot of sense to me. It, and that, that is, if I learn JavaScript on the back end, I don't have to, you know, I'm using the same language on the front end. The problem with that is that a lot of the concerns on the front end and the back end are going to be different. And the, the uh, frameworks that you're going to use on the front end versus the back end are not the same. They don't work the same. They don't look the same. And so you only are able to share a small subset of your domain logic in both places. So I, I don't see it as a huge as huge a win as many people want it to be. That said, I mean, if somebody can solve that problem, I'll be delighted. Um, another reason that is that they can learn by opening the console in their browser, and then they can just play with JavaScript there. I think that's an excellent reason to learn JavaScript. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go install any third-party anything. You just open up your browser and you go for it. The... The, the last reason that I hear, and this one makes a lot of sense to me as well, is that JavaScript on the server in Node.js is very event-driven, and many problems make a lot more sense if you think of them in terms of events and callbacks, or if people hate callbacks, events and promises, which are essentially more friendly callbacks, and you can, you can work with them that way. And by working with them that way and dealing with the threading on those terms instead of the more procedural ways that you deal with it, like in Ruby, Ruby frameworks like Rails or Sinatra or anything else, you wind up dealing with things just in a way that fits your problem better. And if, that, if that's what you're dealing with, that's what you want to do, that makes sense to you, that makes sense to me too. Okay, and so how does developing in one of these all JavaScript frameworks compared to developing on Rails. Like I remember I remember developing on Rails and one of the big hassles for me was just like the templating. Like how, how, like doing this communication between Ru the Ruby side and the JavaScript side. I mean maybe this is exactly what you were referring to earlier mm -hmm. where some people prefer the polyglot and some people don't like the polyglot and maybe I'm just maybe I I fall into the latter category and I prefer my monoglot but um, I don't know, maybe you could contrast the, the, the two development experiences. Well, that's just it. And that's why I don't buy into the premise that having the mm. single language really works out is because you have that same boundary. The, the difference is, is that if you have some domain logic on the back end that actually can be used in the front end for front end concerns, you can share that code. But the rest of it's all about uh, managing request life cycles and things like that on the back end. And on the front end, it's dealing with the DOM and then making the requests. And so since the concerns are so different, a lot of times you wind up working in a completely different routing layer. You wind up working in a completely different uh, other set of concerns with you know making the requests to the back end versus making requests to the database, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I, I just haven't seen encapsulations of backend logic versus database logic that makes them look similar enough to where it makes a ton of sense to say, okay, I'm going to use the same fr framework on the front end and the back end. So, I mean, with Ruby, you have the same exact thing in Rails is that, you know, you have to build the template and send it to the front end, or you can build all that templating into your single page app in your JavaScript on the front end and not worry about it so much. Mm. But, but whether you're doing that in, in JavaScript or Ruby on the back end, you're, you're doing all of that templating work on the front end in the front end framework, and it really doesn't make a difference what your back end is in. Right. How does the Rails onboarding experience compare to something like Express? The, the story that I see there is that the basics of Rails have more or less been the same for the last, what, how long have I been doing Rails? <laughs> yeah, Nine years? I mean, there, there are more moving parts in Rails now, to be sure. And that's something that a lot of people decry as it not being as, as new person friendly. But you can ignore a lot of that stuff and just assume that it's automatic and learn Rails. And Rails has the Rails way because it's highly opinionated. So working in an opinionated system versus working in an unopinionated system. And my experience with Express is that it is not, it, it's not as opinionated and not in the ways that take a lot of the decisions that I don't want to have to make as a new person who may not understand all of the concerns. It doesn't take all of that out of my hands, so I don't have to worry about it. So I think Rails is more new, new person friendly, but that's not to say in any way that pe mm. they can't learn Express. It's just that there are fewer guardrails up in Express for new people, and so they have to learn to make a lot more of those decisions and figure out how to represent a lot more of the logic where in Rails, I find that it's solved a lot of that for you and you just plug in a lot of the APIs that are already there. One of my favorite uh, episodes of JavaScript Jabber that I listened to was an interview that you did with Brendan Eich, who is the creator of JavaScript. And uh, I encourage listeners to check out that episode because it's just super interesting. Um, I mean, there's all these stories in it about you know just a window into what the software world used to be like. You know, It takes you back to the old days of Netscape, and you get a sense of all these men in suits who are arguing over what direction to take JavaScript in, <laughs> and like, do we call it JavaScript, or do we call it ECMAScript, or Mocha, and there's all these stories, like Bill Gates being a tyrant at Microsoft, such a great throwback. So, I mean, what were your favorite parts about that interview and talking to Brendan Eich? Well, for me, a lot of it was kind of a throwback to when I first got into web development, which was when I was in high school, and I was writing little web applications on GeoCities. I, I don't know if anybody <laughs> listens to this show remembers GeoCities. I was like 16 or 17, and that's what I was doing. And I, and I, I would build in you know the little scripts that would make stuff move or something. But I was just using uh, Prototype and Scriptaculous for that stuff. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting. I don't think I completely understood, at least at that time. And I didn't take programming seriously anyway, so I didn't care. But, you know, just to understand, okay, all of the things that I was seeing at the time, they were all a part of this larger ecosystem. They were all a part of this, this struggle between different people to kind of make JavaScript what they thought it ought to be. The other thing that was really interesting to me was just uh, knowing how many people were involved and how they were involved, as well as getting a picture of who, who Brendan is and seeing how he makes decisions that affect the JavaScript ecosystem. That was all very, very interesting. And then seeing how people like Douglas Crockford and some of these other people kind of came onto the scene and then got involved in things overall and how that got us to where we are now, that was all super fascinating as well. I also have to say that I don't let episodes go two hours, but I wasn't stopping Brendan for anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, other than the Brendan Ike episode, what were, what were the other JavaScript interviews that have been uh, like influential on you or that have uh, really appealed to you? Uh, we had an episode, I think it was episode four. We had an episode with Adi Asmani and Yehuda Katz at the time was actually part of the panel. And so they kind of went head to head. It wasn't supposed to be that, but that's what it wound up being. And for me, it was fascinating not to see Yehuda and Addy kind of go nuts saying, well, backbone this and ember that. 
But really what it was was they, if you boiled it down, they were talking about trade-offs. They were talking about, okay, why would you put this kind of functionality into a framework? And since their philosophies were so different between the two, it was easy to see why something made sense for Ember but didn't for Backbone. Well, more specifically, what were they deliberating? Uh, I don't remember anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, the other thing that's been really interesting is as we've had some of the front-end framework um, teams come on. So we've had Dan Abramoff on two out of the last three or four episodes on JavaScript Jabber as we record this that have been published anyway. Yeah. And uh, that, that's been really interesting to see how problems are thought about in React we all, we've also had a handful of episodes with the Angular core team and to see how they approach problems. We have had Tom Dale and Yehuda Katz on at different times and to see how they look at things with Ember. Um, we also had, i trying to remember his name. Um, I think his handle is Substack. Okay. I mean, let's, let's talk more about the React versus Angular stuff because I think that's one of the most interesting stories to recently come out of the javascript community and you've kind of had a front row seat to the javascript community what do you see as the the narrative arc between um this this movement from angular being the uh the the front-end framework of choice to react being the front-end framework of choice so i i also want to just point out that I don't know that React has necessarily overtaken Angular as the most popular framework, nor do I think it really matters. Sure. Uh, a lot of people are talking about, well, everybody's moving to React. Everybody's talking about React because things are happening over there. Well, the, the, I mean, just as an aside, I mean, the way I look at the concession is like, Angular is is changing its engineering model to literally look more like React. Yes, in some ways it is. Um, I, th I honestly think that's healthy. Uh, they're looking at other ecosystems and they're saying that works really well. How can we do that? That makes sense for the people who want to use our framework. And, mm. and I, and I really like that. Um, as far as the people saying, well, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't want to wait for Angular 2, So I want to use react or I want to, you know, I want to use Angular because it's this, that, or the other. I really like the way they divvy things up with directives and components. Uh, I think either either way will work for mm. 80 90% of the the things. You okay, know. so maybe I've maybe I've drank too much of the Kool-Aid. I mean, what are the trade-offs between Angular and React? So, React at this point um one thing is is that it has the one-way data flow in React and that is extremely fast, it's extremely efficient. It's very very efficient actually for your resources on on the machine you're running it on and it allows you to break up your application into components, which is really, really nice. And so you can then think about your view and your template in terms of these different components, and you can work with them that way. And in Angular 1, you can kind of do that, but there is some bleed over between some, sometimes between controllers and services and directives and it's not always as straightforward how you want to solve a problem in Angular as it sometimes is in React as it relates to the DOM. The flip side of that is is that uh, React itself is very focused on, on the DOM and on the template or view layer, depending on how you want to look at it. And Angular is a more holistic approach. But there are other things that you can plug in, Flux, Redux, etc., where you can get those other pieces into React, into the React ecosystem, and get all of the niceties of that one-way data flow. And so the people who really care about that are going to move over, and the people who really want the complete approach of Angular where it's everything in one place, um, you know, they'll stay where they're at. Uh, and yeah, I think I think both approaches are are good and healthy, and I honestly am excited to see what what they can do to kind of um, I, I don't want to use like the word competition, but you know the the ways that they can inspire the other to give us a more healthy and better ecosystem. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know comp competition maybe is the word for it. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. I mean, you have two shows about JavaScript. You have JavaScript Jabber. You also have Adventures in Angular. So mm -hmm. you have a show that's yeah. about Angular. 
when when did the angular community get big enough to necessitate an entire podcast and and is react getting there um i think react is getting there i i actually have a show that uh somebody is starting on devchat.tv it's in the works right now uh, about react native of all things oh awesome so that that'll be starting up here within the next few weeks and there will be three or four episodes when it launches um so i think it's there uh, honestly, if you have more than a few hundred people that will go and listen to the show, then there's enough audience. Hmm. Um, so, so as far as measuring whether or not it's time to start a podcast there, yeah, that that's enough. And then even then, it depends on what you want out of it. So if you're looking to make hundreds of thousands of dollars out of it, then you probably need hundreds of thousands of people listening to it. But if you're just trying to add something to, to the community and have these conversations and you know maybe find a few sponsors, a few hundred people's plenty. Um, but as far as Adventures in Angular goes, um, Merritt Christensen and Joe Eames came to me and said, dude, we want to do a podcast about Angular. And I said, I don't have time. <laughs> and they came back a, a month or two later and they said, dude, how do we start a podcast on Angular? I said, fine. Because <laughs> by then I'd gotten into it and I was like, all right, let's do it. So we started it up. It's been going for about a year. Um, I mean, that said, yeah the the react the react podcast i think i think there's plenty of space out there for it i think there are a few people already talking about it on podcasts um and yeah if you can get some momentum when it's small and then build when it's big then then sure but yeah just keep in mind that if you're if you're in it to make money i don't know that it's in there enough to sustain somebody on just one podcast but if you're in it because you care about the community, you care about the technology, you want to help people understand it, then by all means, go for it. Interesting. So, uh, I mean, you've probably looked at this. What do you think is the future of Facebook's developer tools and libraries? I mean, React Native is a super exciting project, for example. You know, I don't know if I qualify to speculate on that. I mean, they're doing really interesting things now. They have really interesting things, I'm sure, coming down the pipeline. I think it depends on what they need and what they think will pay off. But I've also seen large companies like Facebook uh, create a technology, foster it, foster the community, and then decide that they'd be better off letting the community take it over and making it completely open source and not even managing the core team. I've seen other technologies where a company builds it up, uh, fosters the community, it gets fairly large, and they continue to push it along and help it along and build tools for it, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what Facebook's going to do. Honestly, I, I feel like React will be what we need it to be anyway because it seems to be fairly community-driven at this point. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on what Facebook's going to do. I think it could go, it'll go wherever they need it to. And the nice thing is, is right now it's backed by a big company that's going to pay people to work on it. And it's open and available to everybody. And so we're all benefiting from that just from having a more healthy web ecosystem. And it's the same for Angular, right? Because Google sponsors Angular. So I, both of those contribute to a more healthy and robust internet ecosystem. And that's good for everybody who works in the space or uses the internet. And... I think Facebook and Google both recognize that as the web grows, so do they. And so I, I think for no other, other reason than that, at, at least right now, they're, they're supporting their own sustainability. Uh, they'll continue to support those projects, but you never know. Yeah, well, and speaking of these large sets of tools, let's talk about something slightly different. What do you think of Meteor? I, I think it's a cool system. Um, Again, it's one of those, I keep telling people that uh, like front-end and back-end shared JavaScript is a pipe dream. Um, I think Meteor is actually a really good example of that because even their front-end and back-end don't work exactly the same. But they have made some incredible um, and very interesting uh, innovations in their stack Yeah. with their use of, um, my mind just went blank, WebSockets with their use of WebSockets and the way that they approach the, the various technologies that they use. And then the way that they do allow you where you can to share code is also kind of nice. 
Um, but again, you don't wind up sharing a lot of code. The other thing that's really interesting about Meteor is, yes, they have their back end and yes, they have their front end, which are legitimately two different frameworks, but you can use those on other in other stacks. And that's also really interesting from the standpoint of, okay, well, I want to use maybe the Meteor backend and an adapter on the Angular front end. We actually did an episode on that on Adventures in Angular. Or where, I listen to that one. Or where you might want to pull in, you know, something the other way and provide some web sockets and implement their, um, their protocol over the web socket so that you can support a front end that does some of the things that Meteor does. The other thing that's really interesting about Meteor and other systems like it, Ruby has a framework kind of like it called Volt. And, uh, you know, they back onto MongoDB. They do a lot of the same things. And because they're using WebSockets, you kind of get the real-time update awesomeness that you would want out of that, where mm-hmm. in a lot of other systems like Rails, uh, less it's less difficult with Node, but where you have to kind of build all that stuff yourself on these other platforms. Yeah. When you hear the phrase, JavaScript is the new bytecode, what does it make you think? I think somebody is trying to... Uh, capitalize on an idea that is both popular and not entirely correct. Hmm. So what I mean by that is um, when I think bytecode, you have to understand I'm a computer engineering major. Uh, That's what I studied in college. And so um, when I think bytecode, I'm thinking like ones and zeros that get pulled into a register and you know, munged around over the buses on your uh, on your chip. <laughs> uh, that said, um, I don't... Okay, so there are a couple of things that make me not want to buy into this. Um, but let me start with the, one, the reasons why people are saying this. So you have all kinds of transpiled languages that compile down to JavaScript. Um, the first reason I, uh, and, and that's what that's what they're saying. So JavaScript is the, the new bytecode of the web, right? Because you write in Dart, you write in CoffeeScript, you write in TypeScript, and it all compiles down to ES5 right now. Uh, hopefully we'll get some browsers that natively support ES6 in the future, and th- then it'll compile down to those engines. However, um, first off, the ECMAScript uh, standard is changing, right? So... It's never gonna, it's never gonna consistently compile down to the same language. It's gonna compile down to ES5 until we get new browsers that'll let it compile down to ES6, and then you know another year later we'll com- be compiling to ES2017 or whatever that is, right? In 2018, 2019. So the the first uh, premise of it being bytecode, bytecode is pretty static because it is. Um, it's specific to the architecture that it's running on, and that just isn't the case here. The other issue is is that um, ES5 is neither as performant nor as critical to the overall ecosystem as bytecode is to a standard hardware architecture. And so I, I see what people are saying but I think there's a little too much hype put around it. And I think a lot of people are going to wind up writing in ES5 or ES6 or whatever it is that the browser supports anyway. And, mm-hmm. and people just don't write straight bytecode. Uh, uh, what about ASM.js? Does that fit into this conversation? Uh, as far as the, the bytecode conversation? Yeah, I mean, as far as the... Uh, I just think of, like, in terms of... Uh, wide compatibility and and increasing the use cases for JavaScript. I mean, I, th- I think of I think of JavaScript as the new bytecode as meaning um, it's sort of like uh, sort of like the platform that the the JVM provides, where you have, where this JVM gives you a bytecode language and you can write all kinds of all kinds of stuff on top of it. And the big differentiator between JavaScript and and the JVM at this point is maybe speed. And then ASM.js seems like this potentiating um, speed increase. So that's that's where, where I'm thinking. Maybe. Uh, but even then, it's it's optimized JavaScript, right? It's not... It's, it's not... <laughs> it's not bytecode. It's not, by code. It's it's not, not Java bytecode, by code. no. Um, the, other, the other one that I hear is WebAssembly. 
you know they they announced WebAssembly language that they're they're still specifying and working on, and you know that that may come a little bit closer. Because um, asse- wait, I thought that was ASM.js. Uh, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Sorry, continue. Uh, but assembly language is actually just um, basically naming on top of the bytecodes. So, um, yeah, I, I'd be curious to see how it goes. Um, and, and that may be the thing, right, where WebAssembly is optimized to the way that the browsers think about the functionality. And so at that point, nobody's going to want to write WebAssembly because it's just going to be hard and gross. Um, everybody's going to want to wa- uh, write things in JavaScript or something else that compiles down to WebAssembly. The The other thing that's exciting about something like WebAssembly is that if you can, if you can boil down functions to WebAssembly, then you can write in other paradigms. And we already see this some with like ClojureScript, where you're writing in a functional, uh, basically a Lisp, and and you know, and then you compile it to JavaScript. Yeah. But I think WebAssembly will open that up to the point where you can actually do that with other languages, um, in in a much more complete fashion. And I think at that point, then maybe we'll see something that looks like the bytecode of the internet. But I, I just don't see JavaScript as as that. It has uh, it has too much history and too many things that it has to account for that I just don't see it being the the simple representation of the capability of the system that it's on for it to be a bytecode. Okay, sure, makes sense. So um, I probably pissed a whole bunch of people off there. Uh, that's for the best, that's, <laughs> that's how you grow. Um, so, I mean, uh, speaking of that, like let's, let's talk about podcasting, like. Um, oh, I've never pissed anyone off on a podcast. <laughs> I, meant, I meant speaking of growth. Um, how do you grow a podcast? Oh boy, I gave a talk about this a couple of weeks ago at Toastmasters. Specifically, a software podcast. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things that you just have to know about podcasts and about developers. Uh, the first one is is that all developers are opinionated. Um, the ones that aren't are are the ones that just aren't speaking up. Okay. Now, some, some developers are what Scott Hanselman calls uh, dark matter developers. They show up for work, they get crap done, they go home. Uh, and then you have the people who are actually out there and engaged in the community and excited to be involved. And those are the people that are both going to listen to your podcast first and are going to spread the word about it. Um, so you definitely want to be talking about the things that those people are interested in. And that's kind of the content end of it. But you also need to be putting things out there you, you don't even have to be saying what they agree with you just have to be making them think and getting them to start the conversations on their own either by commenting back on your podcast or calling into your uh, voicemail line or uh, telling somebody else hey the javascript jabber guys talked about x y and z what do you think um, or sending you an email and telling you why you're wrong and i've had all of those things happen um there, there are just a few other things that I want to put out there because ultimately building your podcast audience is about the people. And so, you know, you're reaching the right people. You're talking about what they want you to talk about. And then the next thing that I found, and, and honestly, uh, being regular, so we're every week. Uh, Software Engineering Daily, I'm guessing, is every day. Uh, but people, people come to be able to expect that your stuff's coming out. And, and that's how you gain regular subscribers. And then from there, just talk to your listeners. Um, I actually have a 15-minute call uh, Calendly link that I give out on my shows. And so people hop on and they pick a time where they can get on and talk to me on Skype. And then they add me on Skype and we talk for 15 minutes. I did two of those today. Uh, that's how I first talked to you. Yep. I, I've got a few people scheduled on Monday and Tuesday of next week. Um, I think I have a few people scheduled every day next week, actually. But just doing that and, and letting people know, hey, look, I'm just a dude. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have a microphone um, and I record what I say and then I put it on the Internet. I mean, that's that's great stuff. And, and the other thing is, is that then I can also find out, OK, like today I talked to a guy named Devin 
Um, he he's working for a company out of San Francisco. Uh, his wife is an opera singer. They just moved to Berlin. Um, you know, so I get all these personal details, right? Um, he works for a company that's trying to help um, schools get high-speed internet and make sure that they're enabling their students that way. Um, they have some kind of uh, government partnership. Um, and so I, I made these connections, right? I talked to another guy named Walter. Uh, he actually lives about a half hour from me. I didn't know that when we got on the call. Uh, he works at the University of Utah. Um, he's, he's working on a PHP-backed system, and he's kind of picking up some front-end JavaScript and finding opportunities there. And we're probably going to get lunch here within the next few weeks. Um, so, so all of this to say, you know, go out and talk to the people that are listening to your show, find out what they're about. And then while I'm planning the next episodes of the show, I'm like, you know, this would probably be really helpful in an, in an education space. So Walter might be really interested in this or, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I know that, you know, some of the folks that I've talked to, and this is something that comes right out of one of our most popular episodes that we did recently was episode 180 of JavaScript Jabber, where we talked about getting a job. And man, people were going nuts. Oh my gosh, this is exactly what I needed. I've been looking for something like this. Hmm. Who knew? Blah, 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 blah. Right. And, you know, it was just Amy and I talking about our experiences with finding jobs and the things that people could do to short circuit the process. But man, people got really excited. Well, I wouldn't have known that that was a big deal, except I had talked to people for 15 minutes over and over and over again. And I, I knew, Oh, I'm, I'm getting ready to finish my boot camp, and I want to know what I can do to find a job or I'm really worried or, uh, the last cohort of the boot camp had trouble finding jobs. And so I knew it was an issue. And so why not put that content out there where a whole bunch of people can get it? And I had people recommending it to their friends. I had them recommending it to people that were in boot camps, thinking about boot camps. I had them recommending it to people who were between jobs, who'd been working in the industry for 10 years. And it, you know, it makes a difference in people's lives too. And that pays off. And I love hearing that, you know, it's like I, I had a kid come out from, uh, he moved to Utah from Alaska. And he, he got up, uh, we had talked for about a half hour and I had to run off to another appointment. So I'm getting, you know, I'm piling trash on my tray so I can go dump it and take off out of the restaurant. And he stops me and, you know, and I shook his hand when I got there and I shook his hand cause I was leaving and he stops me and he goes, he goes, wait. And I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, is there something in my teeth? He's like, he, he, he kind of got a little choked up and he looks at me and he goes, he goes, uh, you changed my life. And I'm sitting there thinking that. These, these shows are about code. I mean, sure, we talk about careers and life and this and that and the other, but you know, he's telling me that our one hour or hour and a half gab fest about code <laughs> changes life. And uh, he's, like, he's like, yeah, you know, I would listen to your podcast while I was cleaning carpets in Alaska. Wow. And uh, you know, I, I, decide, I had thought about getting into development so i started listening to javascript jabber and it convinced me that that i could do it and that i was going to make a career change wow and so he made a career change he looked around where he was in alaska and said there's not really a tech community here for me to learn from so he moved to utah and that's an incredible story i mean i mean that's the kind of thing right i mean that's that's the kind of difference that i that i hope to be able to make but that I hadn't really even thought about. But ultimately, I know these people. And by knowing these people, then I can serve these people. And that's how I grow my show now. You know, one thing I think is so interesting about doing this software journalism is I think we're really getting a front row seat to this really titanic shift of people moving from job X to software engineering. Yeah. Like, it's, like it's crazy. There's so so many of people, so many people who are shifting jobs. Like, how, how big... I mean, you mentioned... I, th- I was going to talk about this at the beginning. You mentioned that you know you you feel like the Ruby community has just grown, or you you feel like the overall software engineering community has grown so large that the Ruby community like pales in comparison. Whereas it used to be, like it used to look like the the elephant in the room, um, which is sort of a commentary on like how big software engineering is getting. I mean, how much do you think it has grown over the past five ten years? Like how big is the market grown? 
I don't know if I have a really good handle on that. I mean, yeah. it seems to be... It seems like there are a lot more new people coming in. I mean, two or three orders of magnitude more people coming into the software industry now as opposed to then. How much it's actually grown due to that, I don't know if I have a good way of saying that. Um, I can tell you that in a lot of ways, the things that we're seeing now, um, you know, that's also just an augmentation of what we were seeing before and is a result of some of the movements that we have in the programming community now. So for example, when I worked at BYU, this was before my first, before I was doing that uh, tech support job, I worked in IT at BYU, which is the university here in, in Utah County. And uh, well, it's not the university. I, I'm going to get yelled at now by my neighbors. Um, <laughs> it it's the university that's been around in Utah County the longest, and it is the largest. Uh, it's run by the Mormon Church. And uh, anyway, while I was working there, the development team for the web applications and some of the other administrative applications at BYU. I kid you not, half of the people on that team had law degrees, and. Um, you know, it was it was really interesting to me how many people came into software from other places. I, I don't think that's changed so much now. Um, I think we see maybe more opportunities for newer people who didn't have a different career beforehand able to come in because of the boot camps and the other movements like RailsBridge and um, Node School and things like that where they can show up and basically for free get a basic education in programming in JavaScript or programming in Rails. Um, so I, I see that as, as opportunities that we have now. And then the other thing is, is I think a lot of our communities are becoming more uh, aware of where their issues are when it comes to minorities. And so more minorities are able to come in as well. Do you think there are any economic, um, like, uh, like what's, what's the maximum uh, size of developers that that the market can handle. I mean, does it is it just never ending? I mean, or is it is it an un um, is there no cap on on how many developers our our economy can handle? So my opinion on that, um, I I should preface everything I say by this is my opinion, only my opinion, <laughs> but uh, right now. Uh, every company I talk to, they're saying, we're trying to find developers. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to a fair number of people who just came out of a boot camp or just kind of went through some self-taught stuff, and then they're trying to find a job. And a lot of them are saying, how do I find a job? Yeah. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of people want more experienced developers and that um, we're also seeing that uh, new people are coming in at an alarming rate to the point where they're having trouble finding those entry-level jobs. I, I honestly think that's just going to keep going the way it's going. Um, you know, as we move into more Internet of Things, because Internet of Things eventually is going to turn into um, us telling our... In fact, you can already do this with Siri and HomeKit off of an iOS device. You can do the same thing from Android with other systems where you essentially are telling your light... Uh, you're, you're telling your phone to turn off the light or close the garage door. And it's going to get to the point where eventually um, you're going to walk into the room, you're going to have your smart device with you, and it's going to set the temperature, uh, set the lighting, it's going to, you know, roll your chair out for you or whatever. And so because of that, because more and more things are becoming enabled in this way, and more and more devices are becoming capable of being that kind of central hub or part of a network that controls all of those capable devices, I think I think our field is only going to grow. So, you know, the people that we're bringing in now, we need to find those people jobs so that they can become experienced, so that we can put them into the jobs that we're going to need filled five years down the road. And um, I, I honestly think that's the direction the field is going to go. So, yeah, not only are we not going to cap out but we need to go out of our way to make as many of these people who are coming into our field, uh, put them in a position where they can grow and learn so that they can fill the jobs that we're going to have five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Do you think software engineering is going to get easier? Uh, I will answer that with a probably not. I think it's going to change. I don't know if that's going to be easier. 
Um, we're kind of still at the early stage of our, uh, at least the way I see it, we're still at a very early stage of our industry. And it's only over the last 20 years or so become approachable enough so that people can come into it and start contributing immediately to it. Uh, that so, and I guess in that way it has become easier. But I think it's just become more uh, more accessible out of necessity uh, because we need more people to be able to come in in the first place. And mm-hmm. uh, if we can increase productivity, then these businesses make more money and they'll adopt those technologies. And so there's some competitive advantages that these technologies are trying to pick up so that they can gain traction. Um, that that being said, uh, I I think it's going to change because software at this point in in the early days it was a technology problem. You had to understand the mainframe. Not many people did, and then you had to get in and you had to solve hard problems at a deep level with low level languages. That's just not the case anymore, and um, and so it's not a technology problem anymore. Now it's a people problem, and so if you have dysfunctional teams, your business dies. If you have teams that can't figure out how to solve the problems, your business dies. If you, you know, it, all of the problem, well, not all, but I would say most of the problems that businesses face in the development and technology space come down to the people that they have involved and well, how well they can work together to solve problems. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we've talked about the growing market of developers. Let's talk about the growing market of podcasting. How big do you think podcasting can get? Uh, so this is another area that I have really been looking into. Um, I can tell you that uh, five years ago, the only pod or the only um, the only way you could go to a conference about podcasting was podcamps, and they were kind of informal get-togethers for podcasters where somebody would get up and talk about what they were doing with their own show. Um, about what three or four years ago. New Media Expo added a podcasting track to their conference. So all of a sudden, the conference that acquired Blog World also had a podcasting track where podcasters could come, they could share their ideas, and you had two or three tracks that you could pick from about podcasting-related stuff. Uh, Two years ago, there was a podcast, or there was a Kickstarter campaign for a podcasting conference called Podcast Movement, and... They they didn't sell out, but they had probably, what, four or 500 people show up to the conference. Uh, the next year, I think they did sell out, which was this last summer. And that was in Fort Worth. It was crazy busy. And at this point, there are also a number of podcasters that are at the event that are making seven figures from either selling products on their podcasts or otherwise supporting a business that is highly coupled to their podcast. So you see a lot of that movement there and it's only going to grow. The other thing that has happened over the last few years is that when podcasts came out, we were on iPods and that was pretty much it. You know, you could fiddle with your Zune and make the Zune work or you could download it to your computer and then sync it over to some other MP3 player. Uh, it was kind of automatic between iTunes and iPods. And iTunes actually was uh, ported over to Windows. So you had a whole other class of people who could then listen to podcasts. And then as time has gone on, now podcasts are on everybody's smartphone. It's it's almost a thing you don't even have to think about. I want to listen to a podcast, so what do you do? You open the podcast app, you go in, you find one on, you know, I want to find one on scuba diving. So you find all 23 million podcasts on scuba diving. <laughs> you pick the couple that look the most promising or the most popular. You subscribe to them. You listen to all of them. And then you unsubscribe from the three or four you didn't like and keep the other two. And so it's it's becoming this way of having a channel about a thing that you would never be able to get onto traditional media. But at the same time, I also see podcasts becoming the next level of, or the next layer of traditional media. We're becoming the next radio or the next TV. And the reason, yeah, because yeah, we're, we're hitting these niches where people want to learn. Um, one other thing I just want to jump in with this is that if you have a show, you can put it on now, not just a phone, but I can airplay it to my Apple TV. Um, you can also... 
subscribe to podcasts on the Apple TV. Uh, some of these other devices, you can build apps and essentially get your own channel on those TVs. Uh, that's actually where I've taken my consulting these days is focused on these uh, smart TV systems like Chromecast and Roku and huh. and Amazon Fire TV and the Apple TV, which they just announced you can build apps for Apple TV now on the Apple TV 4. So honestly, at this point... Um, when you're changing channels, you're going to be picking the app you want to watch stuff from, and they could be watching stuff from devchat.tv and one for one hour, and then they can go the next hour and watch something off of NBC. Wow. So you see yourself as building something that looks like, uh, a, like literally like a TV channel. You're not just you're not just thinking on the visual podcast, or sorry, on the audible podcast dimension. Well, there's no reason why I can't stick with the audio podcast thing, right? I mean, you have other apps like uh, Pandora or, you know, something where it pulls the the music off of your other devices. I mean, my Apple TV does that off of my computer. Sure. Uh, you know, it'll pull music out of my library or it'll pull music out of the cloud because I have it in the cloud. Amazon supports the same kind of thing, right? Because you can store songs up there. Um, and so, you know, if I'm doing the dishes... And I have a TV in the kitchen. There's no reason why I'm not going to play the uh, the podcast on my TV as opposed to have it in my pocket and put headphones on. I mean, it's it's way more convenient to just turn the TV on. Then I don't have to wear anything on my head or worry about my you know where my phone is related to the water that might be splashing on the counter. Right. The other thing <laughs> is is that systems like Amazon Echo already play podcasts. So you say uh, Echo or Alexa. I, I'm going to screw people up now if they have an echo and they're listening to this out loud. But you can say, Alexa, play Ruby Rogues. And guess what? Ruby Rogues is in Stitcher. Stitcher's one of the two po uh, podcast uh, directories that Alexa reads and understands. So it'll go to um, it'll go to Stitcher. It'll download the Ruby Rogues episode and start streaming it. Oh, that's so cool. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to become much more mainstream. And the thing is, is because it's going to become more ubiquitous, ubiquitous um, you're going to be able to reach more and more audience of people who are interested in the topics you're in. And there are going to be more and different varied ways that you can actually get in then and interact with it. So if you have a Chrome TV or if you have a Chromecast, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they start putting things like microphones in those so that you can do Skype and stuff over them. You know, but then there's no reason why they can't click the voicemail button and say, um, you know, I stopped it at uh, five minutes and 30 seconds to say, you just said that Ruby is a strongly typed language, and I know that it's not. It's dynamically typed. Or, you know, you mentioned uh, require.js, but these mm -hmm. days people are using different module systems than that. So you may want to actually go and look into these other three. And then I get a voicemail back or I get a comment where it's transcribed, or any number of other things. You know, there might be a button on there to tweet it, and so somebody goes in and they, they get a tweet up that says, uh, I'm watching uh, JavaScript Jabber number 183 on my Chromecast, and, you know, and then it tweets it out with a hashtag that I've chosen out of my app or out of whatever system they're in, and then they can modify that with their remote, which is a pain in the neck, but they can do that, and then they can hit tweet, and they can interact right there. The other thing I see with these uh, TVs is that um, with, the, with the Apple TV in particular, uh, a lot of people have been theorizing that you're going to be able to use your, your phone as a game paddle. And so, you know, why wouldn't you be able to then to have your iPhone 5 or iPhone 6 or 6 Plus or 6S Plus or whatever, and you're sitting there in front of your TV and you're you're listening to a Ruby Rogues episode and you you pull out your phone and it says hey I real I recognize that there's a Chromecast here and that you're watching something or listening to something and then it gives you a bunch of options on there so then I can uh. actually type a comment or type a message and have it sent back to the the content producer wow so you you have a real um, serious vision about where this stuff is going it's super interesting talking to you um, I mean do you think we'll we'll need to move beyond this like RSS feed driven nature of podcasting? Um, I think it'll always remain the uh, reasonable minimum. 
I mean, there's there's no reason to move away from it. It works. It's a standard that people can easily figure out. Um, it only gets complicated when you start adding tags for like iTunes and stuff, and even then, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I don't think we're going to move away from RSS feeds. I just think there might be other alternatives if you want to be on these other systems. So, for example, um, in order to have those levels of interaction, you're going to have to have APIs for those. And so they may be third-party services that you sign up for, and then you know the, the app is just configured to know where those are. It may actually pull those endpoints out of your RSS feed. I mean, who knows? Um, if iTunes can make it so you can add fields to RSS, then these other services can as well. And then it's just a matter of whether or not the app recognizes and understands those uh, those tags. But... Um, you know, then if you want to run it off of an API, I mean, why not? I mean, essentially, that's what the RSS is. It's a single endpoint API that gives you a list of episodes and other media. It's true. I guess when you look at it that way, it's just the MVP of, of whatever else you could want to build off of it. Right. And so the the RSS is read-only, and there's that, but, mm. you know, there's any number of ways that you can extend an API sure. and then say app uh we're following this um this protocol so you know hit these endpoints with these kinds of requests and it'll go through as this kind of interaction sure well uh charles it's been really interesting talking to you this hour flew by um i hope you'll come back on in the future there's so much stuff that i would have uh, <laughs> also liked to talk to you about but um Thanks for thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily, and uh, and I will continue to listen to your fleet of of programming podcasts, which are excellent. Yeah, no problem. <laughs>